and welcome to April 2022's EMJ Podcast of the Month. I am Sarah Edwards and with me today is... I'm Rick Boddy, hello. Hello, and we're going to take you through April 2022's EMJ um, today. So we've got a theme, a couple of themes running through the, the, the journal this month. We're going to start with a little bit of sepsis, we're going to do a little bit of trauma, and then we're going to finally end on a bit of sort of methods, research type things. So let's start with a bit of sepsis. So I'm going to talk about the first paper, which is um, a retrospective single centre descriptive study of, you know, characteristics and management outcomes of adult patients with suspected sepsis in the emergency department. And both Rick and I know and, and you in the audience will know that this is, you know, common presentation to the emergency department. And this paper is by Sabia et al., They were looking at, uh, in a single centre, an observational study going back through the medical records of adult patients admitted to the emergency department over the course of one year with suspected sepsis. What they were trying to really understand is, out of those patients that were happening, who met the sepsis three criteria and what happened to them. So within the paper, uh, they found 509 patients uh, with an average age of sort of 74 years, They were an interesting cohort of patients, and it's well worth reading the paper, but more than half of them were living at home independently or could walk independently, and about 20% of them were care home residents. And what they found, really, after looking at this cohort of patients and, and trying to understand was that actually that this particular cohort of patients who had suspected sepsis generally had a background of substantial functional limitations, quite a few comorbidities and treatment directives involved within their care. And the bottom line really is, is that these patients who are slightly older, slightly frailer, you know, we should be thinking about how, um, you know, escalation of care, managing them um, appropriately. And, you know, this may be why perhaps sepsis is, is, is more challenging with this group of patients. Um, what, what did you feel about this paper, Rick? So I wasn't terribly surprised by the findings, I have to say. I think it's really nice to see it documented and quantified. But this is a cohort of patients who had blood cultures requested in the emergency department. And what they found is generally consistent with what my experience is, that we would do blood cultures for many patients who have multiple comorbidities who um, are older and have lots of different reasons for being in the state that they're in. I wasn't surprised as a result that the portion of patients who had escalation to ICU care was only 6.5%. It was interesting to see over a fifth of the patients had do not attempt resuscitation orders. So it really just highlights that um, sepsis in the emergency department is predominantly, I guess, not about those young people with really frightening serious diagnoses like necrotizing fasciitis or bacterial meningitis. It's predominantly a condition associated with older people with multiple comorbidities. And I guess that helps us to understand the problem that we're trying to deal with in emergency departments. Yeah, and I guess as well that perhaps explains a little bit about why, you know, sepsis is common or um, why people are dying more from it, because actually they tend to be a little bit older, they tend to be a little bit frailer, 
and you know those are the patients that I generally see on a, on a day-to-day basis so as you say I wasn't surprised by the findings of this paper but again it adds to that body of evidence around around this sort of cohort of patients. Rick you're going to take us through a, a quite an interesting commentary about this. Yeah, so a very interesting uh, commentary with a fascinating title written by Adrian Boyle from uh, Addenbrookes in Cambridge. The title is, Is Sepsis a Failed Paradigm? So this is Adrian Boyle giving his opinion on the significance of the findings of this uh, retrospective study. He makes some really interesting points, building on what we've just been discussing, noting that patients who have blood cultures sent in the emergency department tend to be older and have all of those comorbidities. Adrian goes on to point out that perhaps we've been approaching sepsis all wrong all of these years. You know, that we get the newspaper headlines, sepsis kills, there's this rush, rush, rush to get antibiotics in as soon as patients arrive in the emergency department. Adrian questions whether that's actually the right approach. He notes that there's been a meta-analysis which shows that there's very little benefit to getting antibiotics in within one hour as compared to one to three hours. Uh, He notes the three big trials looking at early goal directed therapy, the PROCESS trial, the PROMISE trial and the ARISE trial. None of them showed any benefit with early goal directed therapy. He then makes uh, the point that, you know, antibiotic stewardship is something that we should really be considering in emergency departments. So in total, he's really questioning whether we're really right to have this total focus on sepsis and the rush, 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 get antibiotics in, get critical care interventions in straight away, when actually the majority of patients who come in with suspected sepsis have multiple comorbidities. Many of them, in fact, are at the end of life and pursuing those attempted heroic uh, interventions might not be in the patient's best interests. So we make some really interesting points. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we were chatting a little bit about this before. And I think, you know, sepsis now is probably very different to what it was 20 years ago. And actually, you know, patients are inherently living longer. We've got more evidence around it. And I think the challenge for me is, you know, what is sepsis? Um, And I think this commentary and the paper that we discussed, you know, really touch upon actually who is getting affected by sepsis and perhaps why it is so challenging because actually these patients as I've said you know are older frailer got multiple comorbidities and actually it's hard for them to survive significant infection. It's a really important point a really important question what is sepsis because it's such a heterogeneous group of conditions really. Adrian Boyle made that point maybe we should be trying to diagnose the specific infection and approaching it in that way. And that relates, I guess, to the next paper that uh, which you've looked at from Columbia. Yeah, and it's great to have uh, a paper coming out of Columbia, actually. And this paper by Mendoza et al. is looking at improving the diagnosis and prognosis of sepsis according to the sources of infection. And again, what we've been saying, actually, should we be becoming more focused about where the infection was? They did a secondary analysis of a, of a previous project uh, looking at uh, ED patients within their uh, emergency departments using some very clever, complicated maths um, and came out really with about you know, 1,947 patients. Um, and they were trying to look and understand you know, where the infection sites were coming from and then looking at the consequence 
consequences of this. So the thing which is not surprising, really, the most common being UTI, so urinary tract infection and community acquired pneumonia being the most popular, followed by intra-abdominal infection and, you know, other various bits and pieces. Again, you know, their paper really sums up, you know, probably some of the key points within the previous commentary is about that um, early diagnosis of sepsis in the emergency departments, you know, is important. And that actually perhaps basing it more on the most probable site of infection, you may end up with a slightly better outcome you know, and being that more individualised, more patient-centred care. But it's challenging and it's very complex. And, you know, I think more more research is needed in this area, actually. And it was quite nice to see a different approach uh, to, to looking at sepsis in this case, I think. It was. And you can almost start to see the foundations for further work to refine the scores that we use to predict prognosis in patients with sepsis. Maybe because sepsis is such a heterogeneous tool, we need slight variations on those prediction models for patients with different types of infection. So it was really interesting that you could see how the predictive value of the various parameters varied with the different conditions they looked at. So in intra-abdominal infection, for example, patients who had a low GCS, below 15, were far more likely to have a bad outcome. The um, odds ratio was 9.6 for a GCS less than 15. And the lactate was much more predictive in patients with abdominal infection. Whereas for UTI, for example, respiratory rate and blood pressure were more predictive. So it does suggest that the type of infection affects the predictive value of those parameters that we use to uh, predict severity of infection. Yeah, and as you say, we may need to diverge into condition-specific tools to help us, you know, predict prognosis with different types of infection, a bit like um, our surgical colleagues use the P-possum score for sort of predicting mortality and morbidity for, you know, acute abdominal surgery um, out of hours and, you know, emergency surgery. So who knows? Who knows what's around the corner? And that leads into sort of next, the paper that you're going to talk about, about sort of the Q-SOFA score versus the hospital early warning score. Yeah, sticking nicely with the themes of scores to predict prognosis in patients with sepsis, we've got a systematic review. Uh, this is also led from the, by the team in Sheffield, Sabir, Shami Ramlakan and Steve Goodacre. They've run a, a, a systematic review to look at the predictive value of Q-SOFA and then the early warning scores that we're all familiar with, the NEWS score, the MUSE score, etc. Now, you will probably know that in sepsis 2 and sepsis 3, the recommended tool for risk stratifying patients with suspected sepsis in the ED is QSOFA. And it's quite a simple tool. It uses many of the same parameters that we would use in NEWS and MUSE. The question is, is QSOFA really the best tool or do our familiar early warning scores do just as good a job? So they ran a systematic review. They identified 13 studies, which had included a total of over 400,000 patients. Uh, and they found that, in general, the news score had slightly higher diagnostic accuracy than QSOFA. And they measure that with the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. It had a higher sensitivity than QSOFA. However, QSOFA tended to have a slightly higher specificity. 
So ultimately, I think it tells us that the scores tend to perform fairly similarly. If anything, news had a slight advantage. And, but, you know, but it, it does suggest that if we're familiar with and using the news score, which we are, then perhaps it tells us all that we need to know and we don't need to go to MDCalc for the, uh, for the QSOFA score. That would be my take. But what do you, what do you think, Sarah? Well, I think um, whether you do the QSOFA score or the hospital early warning score or whatever iteration of it, you know, for me as a clinician, and I'd be interested to understand your take of this as well, Rick, does it, does it actually change what I do? I mean, it's good for the hospital to be sort of identifying patients early and, and getting you to think, oh, could this be sepsis? But lots of those parameters could be raised for lots of other reasons. And, you know, I work in a very big department like you do, you know, actually probably a quarter to a third, even up to half of my patients may have sepsis triggers, but actually a lot of them aren't sepsis. So it's important that we're asking the question, but as a practicing ED clinician, it's not really going to change what I do, whether I'm calculating the QSOFA score or the hospital early warning score. I think it's useful in academic purposes, and that's really it. Yeah, it's a very, very good point, because I think when you practice in emergency medicine, you get a feel for which variables are predictive, and you kind of come to an overall reasoned decision about whether the patient is likely to need escalation of care, rather than necessarily focusing on a particular number with the QSOFA score. And that, well, that brings us to our, the end of our little session on sepsis. Yeah. Now we're moving on to a completely different condition. You've looked at e-scooters. Yeah, so in the next little bit, we're going to talk about some different trauma themes. And this was a, a brilliant paper from our Berlin colleagues looking at sort of e-scooter incidents in Berlin and sort of looking at risk factors and evaluation of the pattern of injuries. And this was by Alec et al. Berlin if you've been to Berlin, great city, you know, you can go around in various ways, you can walk, you can segue, but in this case, e-scooters have become increasingly more popular. And they had a look at all the patients from June to December 2019 who uh, presented to one of the four emergency departments who had an e-scooter injury, and they wanted to really understand, you know, what's going on here. And essentially, they used a, you know, sort of typical sort of questionnaire and and tried to elicit uh, what's happening. So, Essentially, 248 patients were admitted to the four emergency departments in Berlin. Uh, 58% were Berlin residents anyway, uh, and 41% were tourists. And predominantly, it's sort of a 50-50 split on, on, on being male. Um, not surprisingly, uh, most of the incidents occurred during summer um, and sort of into the afternoon was the most popular time, into the early evening, and generally occurred over the weekend. The most sort of uh, common injuries that you'd expect, so head injuries, followed by upper limb injuries and lower limb injuries, and then torso injuries. Uh, And frighteningly, sat here as an emergency medicine doctor, only 1% wore helmets, uh, and that was quite frightening. And some of the key things that they found were that about 20% of the patients that were consented to talking about sort of alcohol and stuff had a positive alcohol breath test. So having alcohol on board and being on an e-scooter wasn't great. And a positive alcohol test was associated with a five times increase in a traumatic brain injury. And if you had a positive alcohol test, it was associated with a two times increase in generally being admitted. So basically, if you've had some alcohol on board 
and you're on an e-scooter and considering most people didn't wear a helmet, you are more than likely to end up in one of the emergency departments within Berlin. And that's really it. And I think it's really interesting uh, paper for it's a bit different. You know, we don't have e-scooters so much in the UK, but I think, again, sort of elicits the importance of helmets and not having alcohol on board and, you know, generally trying to be safe. I don't know what you thought of the paper, Rick. Yeah, well, I thought it was fascinating, actually. And I know that that TURN are doing something similar in the UK, our Training Emergency Research Network. So it'll be really interesting to see how the findings compare to those in the UK. At the USIM conference in Lisbon, uh, I had quite a long walk into the centre of the city and there were e-scooters available for hire. I resisted the temptation, although I did think it would be quite good fun. With hindsight, I'm actually quite glad that I resisted the temptation, I have to say. But, you know, this paper tells us that, you know, perhaps one or two people were making unwise decisions. Lots of people riding without helmets, because none are provided, of course. Uh, Lots of people riding e-scooters with alcohol on board. And the maximum age, I think, of one of the riders was 81 years. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you've got to be very careful when you when you consider your mode of transportation and whether uh, yeah. that e-scooter rental is really the best thing for you, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because last time I was in Berlin, which was a long time ago, uh, probably about, you know, eight, nine years ago now, I, I did segwaying around Berlin and I had to wear a helmet for that. They give you a helmet. So it's interesting that the e-scooters, they're not having helmets and segways are just as dangerous as e-scooters. And I'm glad I wore my helmet. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to move on to something uh, still on the trauma theme. So around a geriatric clinical screening tool for cervical spine injuries, Rick. Yeah, so not designed for people who've fallen off e-scooters, but this is designed for older adults who've fallen from standing. It's a study um, from Canada. So the University of Iowa's trauma registry uh, was interrogated here. They have looked at uh, deriving and validating a clinical decision rule for cervical spine injury. The premise for the paper is that we have two very good clinical decision rules for cervical spine injury, the nexus criteria and the Canadian C-spine rule. Now, the Canadian C-spine rule excludes patients who are aged over 65, so you can't use it. The nexus criteria may have lower sensitivity in older adults. So these authors have set about deriving and validating a brand new prediction model uh, for cervical spine injury. They've used a trauma registry to get the data and they've derived a very, very simple model with three predictors. So does the patient have signs of uh, trauma, focal neurological deficit or midline spinal tenderness? Essentially, that was it. And they've derived a model that has a negative predictive value of 94% or 95%, depending on whether you include midline cervical tenderness in there. Sounds fantastic. The authors suggest that maybe we could use this, but we need to prospectively validate it. So there's a little bit of a reason for caution on this. So although that negative predictive value sounds okay, It does, of course, mean that you've got about 5% chance of a missed cervical spine injury, even if you've supposedly ruled out using the rule. And if you look at the sensitivity, you'll see that it's possibly not as high as you might want for a prediction model for, for a diagnosis with such clinical importance. The sensitivity varied by age, but it went from 82.5% in the over 85s 
to, well, 100% in patients who are 65 to 74, but the other age groups got uh, sensitivities in the mid-80s as well. I'm not sure I'm convinced I would use it. <laughs> I'd much rather get a cervical spine CT, given that the, the consequences are quite serious if I miss a cervical spine injury. But I think it has been a stellar effort to derive and validate a clinical decision rule specifically for older adults. What did you think, Sarah? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, really, Rick. I think, you know, the older adult group, you know, particularly the over 65s are really challenging with neck pain, you know, and I've got caught out in my clinical career, like I'm sure you have, with the unsuspected, you know, C-spine injury that you, you either weren't thinking of or wasn't presented to you in perhaps the way that you thought. I think all these rules are great, but yeah, part of me is just like, I just want a CT. <laughs> Yeah, me too, I have to say. Um, So yeah, a bit more burden of evidence uh, required in order to change our practice, but uh, but very interesting study. And very interesting to see the predictors, those three predictors, Mm. one of which was the presence of midline tenderness, and it was a significant positive predictor of a cervical spine injury. However, you've looked at a paper which evaluated the prevalence of cervical spine tenderness in patients who don't have cervical spine injury. Yeah, absolutely. So this is almost a a flip of of the other papers. So this is a paper that was done in um, an urban ED who took patients to a sports medicine clinic in in Montreal. And the paper is titled Prevalence of Midline Cervical Spine Tenderness in the Non-Trauma Population by Delaney et al. And essentially they took, you know, about 500 patients over nearly a two-year period um, who had atraumatic non-head and neck-related reports and looked at them over 20 months. So they hadn't had any particular injuries, but they wanted to ascertain, you know, did they have any C-spine tenderness and things like that. Um, So of the the 478 patients enrolled, 60% of them had midline C-spine tenderness on palpation with both examiners that were were doing it. And the majority of those who had tenderness were female. And what's really interesting, 30% of the total population also had scaphoid tenderness as well. And they had no sort of wrist injuries or any injuries, in fact, related to that. And when looking sort of where in the C-spine those injuries or that tenderness was occurring in these patients, nearly a third of patients had it in the upper third of the C-spine. And then the sort of the rest of the patients were generally in the sort of the middle C-spine. And they found sort of factors that may be associated with with having increased odds of the C-spine tenderness included sort of a lower BMI and scaphoid tenderness on palpation, which is really interesting and and very different. I think the bottom line here is, and this is where I think the challenge will come with any rules that are derived around sort of C-spine tenderness, is that there is clearly a high prevalence of C-spine tenderness in patients who have not had any head or neck trauma and that may be while some of these tools are a little bit challenging at times. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what you think about this paper, Rick. So I found it really interesting myself as well. Obviously, the best way to look at the specificity of a decision rule for cervical spine injury is to include patients with suspected cervical spine injury. So you, you need that that evidence. However, I found this interesting because it made me think about the implications of over screening I guess if we start to palpate the cervical spine of patients where we didn't even suspect a cervical spine injury in the first place and then because there's some tenderness we might overreact and get uh, imaging actually that could be counterproductive given the high prevalence of of tenderness without a cervical spine injury so it's really important information for us 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, as we've said, it's really challenging around neck because actually if you miss something, the consequences are significant and we don't want to be missing anything really. Um, and then just briefly going to talk about on the on the trauma theme uh, around the current management of moderate to severe traumatic pneumothoraces, Rick. Yeah, so a survey led by Pascal Avery and Ed Carlton's the senior author. This looks at variation in practice for patients with traumatic pneumothorax. It was a survey of over 600 people. I was one of them, actually. The authors gave some scenarios for patients with different types of traumatic pneumothorax. They showed us the images and said, how would you manage it? And um, I wasn't particularly surprised to see massive variation in practice, I have to say. There was one scenario where there was a ventilated patient had a very small one centimetre pneumothorax. They weren't compromised. Uh, and they asked, you know, would you put a drain in for this patient? 52% of the respondents said yes. So almost a complete split. And it varied even, you know, patients with open pneumothoraces, 89% saying yes. So it shows quite a bit of equipoise about how we manage patients with traumatic pneumothorax and whether we insert chest drains. To resolve that, we have the committed trial, which Ed is going on to lead, which will randomise patients with traumatic pneumothorax to either drain or conservative management. So we shall get some resolution of the situation when we find out the results of that trial. And again, you know, this this paper touches upon the last paper that you're going to talk about, which is about the challenge of doing research within the emergency department and the inherent problem around selection bias within the Department, uh, particularly with convenience sampling, and great to hear your thoughts on this, Rick. Yeah, so I had the privilege of handling this paper as uh, the editor, and this is a really nice uh, paper from Travis Lyons, senior author's David Taylor. They looked at the possible implications of recruiting convenience samples of patients to studies in emergency medicine. The point is that we often recruit patients in normal working hours because that's when our research nurses are available. However, they compared the baseline characteristics of patients with a few different conditions, whether they presented in working hours or in the evening or during the night. So they looked at patients with dyspnea, with headache and with chest pain, and they found some systematic differences in the patients and the baseline characteristics. So they conclude on the basis of these systematic differences that we really, really need to be ensuring that we get consecutive samples in our research studies to avoid selection bias. We could underrepresent certain important groups of patients with different uh, vital signs if we don't um, include them at the consecutive sample, if we're only recruiting in working hours. So very interesting study. One thing I would say is that the absolute differences in the vital signs that they talked about were pretty small. <laughs> so if we look at, uh, for example, patients with chest pain, there were differences in respiratory rates, uh, but they were very, very small. So it, it met statistical significance. I think the p-value was, was, was quite significant. But um, actually, there was a, a difference of only one breath per minute, for example. The patients who presented during the night tended to be younger, but they were 43 on average compared to 46 during the daytime. There weren't huge, huge differences um, in sort of absolute terms. So the question is, are those differences really clinically significant and would they meaningfully change the conclusions of a study? I don't know. I wasn't sure I was totally convinced, but I think this is really, really important evidence. The question is, 
does it mean that we, we need to abandon our model of research delivery in the UK? Because we have research nurses during the daytime. How on earth would we manage to recruit a consecutive sample to address these issues? It's going to be a challenge for us. Yeah, absolutely. Reckon that it's not easy because there's, you know, financial constraints. There's, you know, people availability, and you know, actually, we probably need to look at doing more research around actually if we're only using convenient samples. You know, it's not only to emergency medicine but to other specialties as well. Is that really impacting and having a significant clinical effect on on, on our results? I don't know. Who knows? Absolutely, but really important uh, piece of work to sort of inform the conversation. Absolutely. So that's going to bring us uh, to the end of the April 2022 papers. Uh, Really some fantastic papers and it's been great chatting to you as always, Rick. So I'm going to say goodbye for now. And goodbye from me. Thank you very much. Thank you.